only 2% of women in, well, of investors in the world are women today. Today, all the way from London, we have the honor to speak to the InsureTech queen herself, Sabine van der Linden. Sabine is a pioneer in building digital business ecosystems. She's an author, entrepreneur, awarded in the top 50 women in tech, a fintech, insure tech influencer, and CEO and co-founder of the Alchemy Crew. Join us for a great conversation as we dive into female innovators in the industry, innovation and entrepreneurship, the value of digital assets. I mean, what the heck is the value of digital assets? And also, what's their future? And Sabine breaks down her knowledge on helping the small insurance companies and banks so that they don't get lost in the innovation stress under the bigger companies. Sabine flips the script on me as we dive down the rabbit hole of challenges in the industry, asking me some questions. You don't want to miss this innovative conversation with an influential woman in the industry, Sabine Vanderlinden. This is Bridging the Gap with your host, Matt Reiner. Sabine Vanderlinden. Welcome to Bridging the Gap. How are you? All the way from London. How's everything going with you? Hi, Matt. Thank you very much for having me with you today. And London is sunny and great, actually, today. Not too bad. <laughs> well, you know, I'm, I'm ecstatic to have you. I, I think, you know, your credentials and, you know, your background, you know, a top 100 in fintech influencer and just, you know, your impact that you're making in financial technology and sure tech and all of it is amazing. And, and I want to dive into that. Before we get there, can you tell just kind of our, our listeners, you know, who you are and, and where, what led you to what you're doing today? Sure, Matt. So hi, everyone. I'm Sabine van der Linden, as Matt shared with you. I have actually 30 years experience in insurance. I started my career at Lloyd's of London many years back. And through that career, I touched a bit of everything. I touched insurance. I went into consulting, worked for the big five, worked for IBM. Find my passion at some point in predictive analytics, working with um, interesting companies like Pega and FICO. And six years ago, I decided to try fintech. And uh, after that year working for a real fintech in London, I decided that these things called fintech would actually start in insurance. So I was one of the first people joining the InsureTech bandwagon in 2015 and built two very well-known accelerators in Europe and the United States. And from that, help accelerate 100 ventures and help them raise $100 million of funding. That's incredible. That's incredible. And you know what? Uh, so you started in insurance. So you had a passion for it with Lloyd's, and 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 then you you got into fintech, and then you started these accelerators. You know, it's interesting when when you think about it, you've been on both sides of it, right? You've been in the fintech side, you've been in the corporate side, you've been in the accelerator side to try to bring them together. So I mean, you have the whole spectrum that is there. I'm curious from your perspective, you know. In building this like innovation for, I mean, an industry like insurance doesn't seem innovative. How how does I mean, how how is a, a company that's not necessarily an industry that's not necessarily innovative, you know, how do they create a model that does stem and create and, and inspire innovation? How how do you go about that? So it's interesting, Matt, because in 2015, I remember reading articles from Anderson Horowitz and Sequoia 
who actually decided to put some millions and actually billions of dollars at that time already in insurtech. So tech ventures focused on the insurance sector. And I think that created a little bit of FOMO within the insurance industry. And what you found is a number of leaders, very well-known organizations, decided to start investigating what this insurtech, fintech bandwagon meant. So innovation within insurance means partly collaborating with startups. So taking startups to change the business model, like unbundle what is existing, change it with digital capabilities, so do that much faster. But it also means learning to build new businesses, new digital businesses, which may not actually sit within the insurance organizations. Now you have probably around five to 6,000 insurance companies globally. Those doing stuff, you know, are a very small percentage of, you know, of those companies. It's literally maybe less than 1% actually, Matt. So innovation means pushing the boundaries. It means partly driving efficiency, you know, improving your basic processes. It's also about building the product and services of tomorrow. Imagine, you know, we have all those great segments we love talking about, the millennial, the Gen Z, people who need financial resilience. So it's building products and services which allow others in our markets, you know, developed markets and in new markets like Latin Africa to be protected as well. And I think the one which excites me the most is disruptive innovation, where you actually look at business models and uh, start building disruptive business models, which are going to survive the next wave of transformative change. Before they're disrupted again, right? By the next, by the next innovators that come past us. And, you know, I, I always, I like to ask this question uh, because it, I think to our listener base, innovation in industries like wealth management and insurance seems so difficult because it's, 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 it's built on rooted corporations rooted that have been like there that have just been there forever and then you also have compliance and i you you mentioned something of like of pushing boundaries right pushing boundaries when i hear that in insurance they just don't go together right because insurance companies are so you know they're 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 risk averse they're trying to protect themselves they want to make sure that they make a profit while taking all this risk on the other side how how do you disrupt that business model right for something that is insurance that is so important to business insurance, life insurance, and property and casualty insurance. What 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 is needed in your mind? What what's the kind of the foundation or the the structure of an innovative, disruptive technology within such a space that's rooted for so long in everybody's lives? So first you're absolutely right. Uh, an industry like insurance do technically do not really like innovation. But I'm careful about what I'm saying, because as you said, insurance is rooted in risk mitigation, so risk aversion. So I should not take risk, right, to protect my clients, and I should protect my income and the underwriting premium I acquire to pay future claims. I cannot put that at risk. And the regulator make sure that insurance companies and finance companies are taking good care of people's money, and in my industry, people's premium so that future claims can be paid. And I'm sure you heard amazing stories during the past few months around claims which may not have been paid because of a risk which we didn't predict. So what does innovation look like in insurance? Well, it looks like risk 
And for us, it's about de-risking anything we do. So it's interesting because I do work with fintech ventures. I work with banks as much as I work with insurance companies, but I work more often with insurance companies than banks. I find banks able to move a little bit faster, maybe because they are more able to take risk compared to insurance companies. But insurance companies, when they make decisions, they do a lot of research. They do a lot of evaluation of a customer disability likely to buy. Uh, because actually insurance is not something you really want. You know, most people buy insurance because they have to. So how do you actually end up making insurance look more sexy for a user, for a customer, for a consumer? And uh, it is about also then identifying the right models. So the way we disrupt insurance now is finding new models which allows things to be done completely digitally like your Netflix experience, so from your mobile phone. That means that uh, when you pay for premium, you don't have 20 questions, you only have three or four now. When you uh, try to find a product, you may actually be embedded into somebody else's offer. So think about going and buying something on Amazon. You may actually sometimes see an offer, a warranty offer to protect the asset you've just bought. But it's also meaning, for us, it also means um, changing the way some processes which have been embedded for years are being adapted. So an area which excites me a lot is insurance as a service. So instead of paying one premium for the year, you pay small premium every month and actually you can stop. And you also have premiums which are uh, flexible. So some months, if you don't have any risk, let's say, you pay small premium and if your risk pool has actually had a big loss you pay more premium so that is called peer-to-peer the last one i think which is the most interesting for us whether it is let's say think about travel or commercial line is called parametric so you define a product based on specific parameters like the weather which means when a risk occur you just pay for the claim which means there is no claims department required now to deal with some of those products. That's so let's dive into that. That's super interesting. Talk to me about that a little bit further. So what you're saying is that there's a disruptive solution that's coming out that says basically you're only paying when the actual claim happens. Correct. So think, I mean, not every product can be parametered, but climate can, right? You know, when it rains, if it's too hot, when there is um, a fire, right, you can actually apply what is happening as a parameter. And houses being burnt, fire, you can actually say this risk has occurred now. I can see it either we're looking at Google Maps. And so you will look at an external party to validate that the risk has occurred. And then instead of it going into claims, process which may last months sometimes years you can actually make a choice to pay in 15 days and so the parameters become triggers to make decisions rather than giving the choice around specific risk to i would say a claims management team people so technology becomes a criteria to making the choice so you're basically standardizing it's mainly it's more of a help for the insurance company to make it easier to determine whether 
a claim should be paid or not based off of these parameters that are weather bound. So it's like an AI algorithm basically saying that, yes, the weather made it or not. So you create, you, you really take out the subjective aspect of claims, which can take forever because it's whether that person's in a good mood or a bad mood and they determine it, whatever. You're now just using straight data and able to understand it and read it quicker to pay people out faster. Absolutely right. Think about your travel. You know, I've been in the United States in Chicago during uh, winter months. I've lost my luggages as well, <laughs> traveling to the U.S. As, as, as all of us have in Chicago. So apply the parameters to lost luggage or delayed flight. You can actually be paid before you take your flight if you actually apply parametrics and data to make those choices. That's incredible. That's incredible. And, you know, I want to take on before I, I want to jump into some of your, your your roadmap to success for for how to build a, a fintech, right? A successful fintech and scale in a fintech from one of your recent articles. But before we get in there, I, you know, we're talking about disrupting an industry. We've, we've been talking on that for a little bit here. I want to switch to the other side, right? I always think when you get innovation, like a startup into a large insurance company or a large bank, you stifle the innovation, right? You stifle the creativity because of those the formality and the structure and the politicalness of you know of the of a large company. How can a large corporation change that, right? Because I think that all these startups get bought up and think that's successful for them and it allows this insurance company to change their mentality, but they just don't have the capability to change drastically. So when you work with big insurance companies or big banks, what do you suggest to them to ensure that they don't stifle innovation from these creative, lean, you know, startups that can pivot so quickly what the banks can't really or the insurance companies can't? I think you always have to start with some type of charter or innovation thesis, right? To actually know where you, you know, your, your north path, where you are going. You're trying to define where you are going. But then when you start deciding to partner, invest or acquire venture, you need to really know why you are doing it. So when you look at each of those models, I would say you would apply different techniques. I work with a lot of insurance companies to help them what I call democratize and industrialize techniques to allow them to be successful at partnership with startups or investing in startups. So to partner with startups, you have to start with strategy, but you also have to work with your small teams. Some situation you end up seeing corporations involving too many stakeholders and in initiatives. And so therefore they go down the rabbit hole and no decision are being taken. So I think one rule of thumb is having the right unit, a unit which is accountable to do innovation in the right way with a budget and to do it as well in the right way so that they can pay for pilots and proof of concept because I don't think it's ever right to take free time from a startup, part of a young startup, which has very scarce resources. And it's about enabling them to actually understand the technique and the, the gap they can alleviate by working with ventures. So usually big companies, resources, they have distribution channel, the infrastructure, they've done it for years, right? In my industry, insurance insurance companies have been living for some for 338 years so quite old industry that is you know that is just a great way of doing it and i talk about you know with innovation just within wealth management i always tell people you know because it's so hard for firms to change because they're always growing it's hard you know like why would we rock the boat and i always say 
go and find a, a group of three to five individuals that want to innovate and let them innovate and accept failure as long as it doesn't put the client at risk. And, and, then, and then let them see and give them ownership of that, right? Let them have some freedom of where they go with it and see what they can do and be open-minded. And if you can do that, then you don't have to do the work, but you get this innovative thought. And, and it's worked, you know, for my own financial advisory firm, that's what we've done. And, and I, I believe that we are one of the most innovative firms around and we've grown and we've had that success, but we've also failed a lot. And so it's just like what you're saying to corporations, right? Go and find that, let them, let them be their own little thing and let them have a budget. What are their defined goals? And then let them go and determine the route to that, which is an incredible way to think about innovation inside of a space that, to be honest, lacks a lot of it from that standpoint. Yeah. And think about the innovators, right? The entrepreneurs or the entrepreneurs that are building unique startups, right? I tend to divide startups either innovators which are enabling a company to improve their processes or the disruptors who actually compete against uh, the big companies. And what they have usually in common is chaos thinking, for sure scarce resources, so they don't do waste, very linear and very flat structure, but also they are uh, keen to learn new techniques like design thinking, desirability technique, feasibility, how you actually focus on the customer and use technology to drive new technology applications to serve the customer. And then they usually are master of business model because they can learn, iterate, proactively um, change the parameters, pivot, you know, all those great startup words, but they are true because usually in big companies, you're not measured allowing failure while young ventures and entrepreneurs will accept failure as an opportunity to learn, to actually... Yeah grow and do better things. I think, and I think you, you, you posted a quote recently on Twitter and it was from Reed Hoffman. I'm going to butcher the quote, but it was, it was in the sense of saying, if you're not, if you're not um, disgusted or laughing at your initial product, then you haven't, you haven't really reached success. Right. And I think that that's such a powerful thing for corporations to remember. And even, you know, any type of company, it doesn't have to be a fortune 100 or fortune 500. Any company to think about is that if you're going to innovate, the beginning of innovation is very ugly and you have to accept that. And I think corporations and established companies have a difficult time with that because they've already kind of established that and they don't know that they, they've got a, a very nice looking structure and product and service offering. But if you want to innovate, you got to accept that, you know, the product's not going to be pretty at the beginning and, and you just got to let them continue to figure it out. Matt, what do you think is uh, the biggest the biggest challenge in large companies to get anything done. I think it's, uh, I think it's, it's, you know, this is a podcast where I'm supposed to be asking you questions, not you asking me questions. <laughs> um, I would, I would say it's, I, I think it's just the, the structure and the political nature of large companies where you have such like structure and compliance around it keeps people and just, you know, you know, squeezes out innovation. You're absolutely right. People. People, because people are measured in big companies, right? We have KPIs, we're metrics. We are incentivized in a very specific way. So imagine if you could take that away, incentivization, the fear of failure, the politics, the stakeholder management. You could do so many, so many amazing things. I think that the biggest challenge to bring innovation in big companies usually is a political environment and the fear of failure and the incentives. So what you find is if you look at corporate venturing, 
and uh, big companies even building their own corporate venturing arm, the metrics are very different. Usually people get also measured, sure, on money, but on equity. It's very hard to implement equity in big companies. Mm. That is, and I love how you flip the script by asking me questions. And I, you know, I think that that's only fair. But so I, I want to, I want to move from the corporations creating innovation in the corporations. But I want to create, I want to move to an article that you recently wrote that was called "Scaling with Speed Like a FinTech Unicorn." Mm-hmm. And in there, you broke down kind of a roadmap to success. I think you wrote like five different guidelines in there of how someone should consider you know, to evaluate, evolve, and transform the basic premises behind the traditional insurance models to create innovative models. Can you just talk through, you know, from a high level, some of those guidelines that you saw of, of what is successful on that roadmap? So, so when you actually look at unicorns market, and at the moment, I'm mostly looking at fintechs and uh, insurtechs, you have a number of criteria you actually see emerge from those companies. I would say some of them, we have talked about them, right? First, you need to think about people, the founding teams, and you need to have entrepreneurs which are truly entrepreneurial. I was reading um, recently an article from Anand from CB Insight where uh, he was highlighting two, three profiles of entrepreneurs and the one which I posed on was the one who spent a lot of time reading books and actually get nothing done. The whole thing about entrepreneurship and building a venture is execution. So one of the criteria I would say when you look at uh, the major unicorns and um, the, the companies which have succeeded so far, they have a, a fantastic, fantastic um, C-level team or entrepreneurial team, founding team. All of them have this uh, entrepreneurial mindset, but very much about focus on execution. The a certain point uh, I've noticed with many of them is they don't start. They start with the the customer. So the the whole purpose of the venture is to serve a customer, and use digital technologies to achieve that outcome. And so, you know, we often talk about sprinting. We talk about customer insight, validating business ideas, how we validate those business ideas, how we do um, MVP, minimum viable product, minimum valuable valuable products or services, and how we, we justify the business case. What I also notice they are very good at doing that and doing that very simply and focusing, they being very focused on one market at a time. I think lastly is the technology. The technology is core, and what I see more and more is the best technologies which are out there look at the infrastructure first when they build their business. So they are not just building small, they are building, they are aiming to build big. And so the way they are building the infrastructure of the technology, the components to deliver the digital vision is key to their long-term success. You know, I, I think that, that that's really interesting is the idea of execution, focusing on execution. And then and then you talk about, you know, you start with the customer because so many people, they, they if they're not doing both of those, then you're going to fail, right? If you can execute really well, but you're executing on something that nobody wants or that you just think is you like and nobody cares about it, then it's not going to be successful. No. But then if you focus on anything that the comp- the that people want, but you're not able to execute on it, it's going to fail. And I think that there's also something there where 
you know, as a founder, and I, I'd be interested to know your thoughts on this, is that you have to have a vision for where you want to take it. Because when someone, and especially young entrepreneurs, I fell into this trap very early on when we started our technology company. You know, I had a vision, but I was always like, oh, I'll listen to my customers and I'll listen to other people. And then when I listened to them, I would just go do what they said as opposed, and I wouldn't have a strong vision to go to. Listening to your customers should help you refine, not define. Correct. Right. It helped you refine your vision, not to define it. And I think a lot of entrepreneurs, they go, well, I can execute. I'm going to talk to my customers. I'm just going to go execute what they want. And they go in this circle because they're just defining by what their customers say. And I think that that's so key, though, to, to talk to your customers and build something for your customers, but to be able to execute on your vision, not on necessarily their vision. Absolutely. Absolutely true. And I think you, you go back to Steve Jobs, you know, very in quotes, right? When he built the, the iPhone, he definitely asked a few questions, but he actually interpreted what he asked to deliver three things in one, right? Which, which became one of the tools we use the most today in our everyday lives. That, and, and so I, as we talk about Steve Jobs and innovation in the iPhone, there's, there's an innovation happening today in the world. And, and I, I'd love to get your perspective on it. And it's all around digital assets, right? Everybody knows Bitcoin, you know, crypto, everything is, is NFTs. It's a hot topic these days. And, you know, from your perspective, being a leader in fintech, I'm sure you have a perspective on digital assets and digital currencies. What is, from your perspective, what is the value of digital assets? And what is the future of digital assets in the world today? How do, is it going to become a currency? Or is it just a, a piece of a portfolio going forward? Digital assets, I think, are going to be one of the most uh, important parts of the way we make money in the future. You know, we have physical asset buildings, and then we have uh, digital assets like your brand, Matt, or my personal brand. And if we cherish those very well, they can, you know, lead to financial returns by us monetizing our personal brands. Now, when you start looking at what you could do, for example, with the metaverse, and I know we've done things with Second Life in the past, so we've been there before, but the potential of an environment which is digitized, we use a proper, you know, virtual reality glasses that we can wear this time, but not for, you know, for very, very long hours, within a few hours, uh, which is the case with some of the devices which are there, you can start building stuff in those worlds. And... When you look at the younger generations, Gen Zs and Gen Alpha, they are going to be expecting to engage in this digital environment. And it's why we spend probably a bit too much time on social media. So I see um, the metaverse environment as a potential environment where you can actually build digital assets, so digital buildings. You can actually run your meetings, entertain, have your avatars, and educate. I think one of the main areas which is going to be one of the fastest growing areas would be certainly entertainment and education within those environments. Then you apply NFTs, so these non-fungible tokens, which you can change, right? So your value as maybe having a beautiful painting of Matt on the NFT, you could sell that. You could sell different version of it, right? You can even burn them if you wanted to. There's a value of burning stuff nowadays as well. But the key thing is you can now monetize and be paid with digital currencies 
So this world, um, which is still nascent, I think we just need to watch it very carefully. Because if you have digital assets, it means you have risk. So therefore, you need insurance too. <laughs> Oh, and it always comes back to being insured. You're right. I love that. And, you know, I, I also do love that you talked about an NFT of a beautifully painted picture of me. Now, that would be incredible if someone could actually make that happen. I don't know what it would sell for, maybe pennies on the dollar, but but it would be it would be an interesting NFT. Maybe my son or my wife or my mom would buy it. One of those people probably would buy it. So digital assets then, I, I guess how we know them today is... Is that how we're going to know them in the future? Because I, I, I think that people are um, looking at it like crypto and that like Bitcoin as a as a currency. You know, NFTs to me is like like you're you're referring to is like a piece of art. It's like a it's a asset there. I mean, is it is it just going to fall itself into just being an asset as opposed to a currency, or do you see it actually becoming a global currency? So. When you start looking at digital assets, you have different forms of digital assets. It could be money. You mentioned blockchain, bitcoins, alternative coins are digital assets. People are owning them. They are buying them. Everybody wants to make money from them. But then you can look at technology, infrastructure platforms, you know, Amazon, WS. Those are digital assets. And so anything which is digitized has value as it's providing benefit to a customer there's a value exchange and through that value exchange you have to you, you can make money you can monetize but you can also uh, incur risk think about cyber security with us moving to remote working for the past two years you know we had to be a bit more careful on the things we clicked on so there's so many opportunities around digitization which drive asset digitization which drives also the development of new type of ways to engage and exchange value, which means some days this could become even bigger than our physical asset. I am watching a series at the moment, Matt. I'm watching We Crashed. And um, it's fascinating how real estate can actually go up and down. And so that would be probably the same with our digital assets. Agreed. And that, that, that documentary is a great one. Uh, just an interesting, such an interesting story. And before we get to kind of letting you get back to your day in London, because this has been a fascinating conversation that, I, that I've really enjoyed, and I think we can continue to talk about it for, for hours, is I, I, you're, you're, such a, you're such a prominent figure in fintech industry. And you're also a prominent figure and an advocate for female-founded startups. I, I would be so interested to know you know, what are some of the startups that you're seeing that are female-led that are kind of that you're so excited about, that you're most excited about, and, and why? And tell us why you're excited about them. So I'll start, I will start with the, the, the challenge we have uh, when you have founders who come from minorities, you know, female, but I would say any minorities, we have a big theme today around diversity, equity, and inclusion. So I would like, you know, to include LGBTQ+, and you know, it, it is very important to understand that it's women, but it's minorities in general. Only 2% of women, in well, of investors in the world are women today. It used mm. to be 4% last year, it's around 2% today. So it means that sometimes when you don't have your peers for women founders to get investment, it becomes more difficult, minorities in general. So we need to rebalance that. 
but at the same time, if you look at the stat, women founded startups can yield better return than men, men founded startups. It's statistically proven. So why not put more money in uh, women founded businesses? Now, some of the companies I've seen, which are amazing, there is some startups, for example, in geospatial imagery uh, in Silicon Valley, Rachel, she's a 30 under 30 startup founder and growing super fast. And she has recruited an amazing team of people around her. And I met her just recently in London. You have others building insurance-based mapping to identify risk. You have others actually addressing problem across the end-to-end supply chain. But, you know, when, when we actually had to spend more time transferring vaccines, you need blockchain, actually, digital asset, blockchains, and um, visualization of where the vaccines are and understanding the temperature, whether you are going to eat the 12 uh, hours. And you have some wonderful women, women-led startups, actually, who have been managing the supply of the vaccine during the past two years. So you have amazing, inspiring women out there who are doing amazing things to change our world. So what we're going to do is I want to bring light to these women that are changing the world and doing great things. And and so what we're going to do is I, I we're going to get from you, Sabine, some, some of these companies' names and links to their websites, and we're going to put them into the notes to this podcast. So they, I want our listeners to go and check them out and support them and follow them because of what they're doing great. So that's what I want to do is put them in our, in our notes and continue to, to help. So we'll get some of those names of the companies and their links and everything from you after the show. You're inspiring. That's for sure. You are inspiring. And so, you know, I can't wait to continue to follow you. And before we let you go, you got to help inspire some of our listeners as well. We are, we are, we are a bunch of learners, right? We talked about learning and reading, but also executing, right? You can't just be a learner and not execute. And so, you know, the listeners here though, always want to learn from great minds like yourself. So I like to ask, what is one book other than a book that you've written, but we need to talk about that. And I'm going to talk about that before we go. What is one book other than the book you've written? And then we're going to promote your book that you think everybody should read. So as we were talking about building indestructible business models and, you know, driving our path to success, I would recommend to read a great book from Alex Alstonwalder called The Invincible Company. I got my teams in my company to read that book to understand what a sustainable and indestructible business model could look like. And I think it's a gem. It's very visual. And um, it forces you to understand some of those key parameters. Actually, Matt. I love that. Now, let's get to the, the book that's actually the real book that you think everybody should read. And it's your book. And it's the InsureTech book. Tell us a little bit about the InsureTech book, which is the insurance technology handbook for investors, entrepreneurs, and fintech visionaries. So this project, you see, um, was put together with, by a great friend of mine. And I was thinking myself to to actually write a book and I told her about it. And she said, just give me a few moments, Sabine. And two or three months later, she had a contract with Wiley and here we are writing a book. So the InsurTech book had for goal to enable any one of us to actually learn about insurance technology because you don't have many insurance books out there. And if they are, they are usually, you have to buy them from the Charter Insurance Institute in London. And so we wanted something easy to read, to understand the disruption happening in our industry and make it quite exciting for talent and entrepreneurs to want to enter insure tech. You know, whilst there are, I think, 95,000 
uh, fintech startups out there. 6,000 of them are uh, in Showtech. And when you look at the financing, Around 700 billion have been invested in InsurTech, in fintech startups. 10% of that have been into InsurTech. So we need to bring more entrepreneurs in our industry. And I hope people reading it get excited about the potential of disrupting an industry which is not that young. I love that. The InsurTech book, you can go and get it now. And so as we close out, and I always give credit to where this question came from, it comes from when I was watching Barron's conferences, etc. They always ask their guests, what's one piece of actionable advice that you can give to our listeners today? So we talked about the invincible company. Please read the invincible companies. And as you read it, take notes and apply some of the techniques which are in there. You would be surprised which new business model you may come up with, new ideas. Maybe you will build your next unicorn. And if you do, please contact me. But read. <laughs> we'll contact you before you're the unicorn, right? So that you can invest and become a unicorn with them. Let's do that. Right? Absolutely, absolutely. But actionable reading, you may actually be surprised what you end up finding in your shelf reading that great piece of content. I love it. Sabine, this has been a true pleasure uh, and you've been gracious with your time. So thank you. And, and I know that there's listeners that are going to want to continue to follow you, be engaged with you and be supportive of everything you're doing. So how can our listeners continue to follow you? How can they get in contact with you? Where can they buy the InsureTech book? Tell us all of it. The InsureTech book is available on Amazon.com and most Amazon um, licensing around the world, actually. You can also find it on the Wiley website. Where you can find me, well, Sabine VDL. So that's my, my little nickname given to me by uh, a lot of people out there. So on Twitter, it's Sabine VDL. On LinkedIn, it's actually my name, Sabine Van Der Linden. And then you can find me on other platforms like Facebook, TikTok, and Instagram at Sabine VDL Officials. Yes, there are other Sabine Van Der Linden. So I had to call myself official. I love it. You are the official. You're the most influential as well. Sabine Vanderlinden, thank you so, so much for joining us today on Bridging the Gap and looking forward to having future conversations and continue to follow in all the great things you're doing. Thank you, Matt. Thank you for having me. Thanks for tuning in to this week's episode of Bridging the Gap. Don't forget to give us a rating and let us know what you think. This is-